In America today, we know that <clears throat> what determines the um, significance, contentment, happiness, peace, worthiness, legitimacy of our lives, the thing that will really give our lives meaning is not what the ancient Greeks said, which they communicated that the unexamined life is not worth living. It's not examining our lives that makes our lives worth living in America today. But what makes our lives worth living in America today is choice. And the life that has no choices or the life that has been significantly impacted by other people making choices for us is a life that is not worth living. Choice is the grid through which we interpret our significance in life. And anything that comes in between us and the exercise of our self-determination, of our autonomy, of our high and mighty position needs to be obliterated. Because what matters is that I am able to determine my life. And so when the Republicans get up and they talk about how they think that blacks should be given salaries and not simply food stamps, everybody goes, that's right. You know? They should have choice, dignity, right? And we're all on board with it because everybody's a Horatio Alger's uh, uh, fan. It is the great story of America. Our President Barack Obama, the story of a man who has risen up to the highest office in the country and came from a background not dissimilar from Andrew Jackson and from Abraham Lincoln. And so what we want in America is to believe in self-determination and in choice. You remember for years there was a commercial that the punchline to the whole series of commercials was AT&T, the right choice. And so I want you to be able to enter into my own life for a few minutes. Here's what I resent. I resent the fact that I have not been born in Scotland or Ireland or England. And even South Africa would have been better than the United States of America. Why? Well, if I had been born in any of those countries, I've had a sophisticated accent. And so when I get personal in my preaching, it would be more palatable. Because it would come with a burr. It it would make us realize that despite him opening us up like a patient on a surgery table, that he actually is a fairly sophisticated individual. And so my physician is a very, very erudite and cosmopolitan and he has an accent. And it feels so much better to have him open me up on the operating table when he does it with a Scottish burr. 
And so I resent the fact that I don't have an English accent. Because if I had an English accent, I could come to the United States of America and have a church filled with people much more important than you. And it's rather undignified for me to have you as a congregation. Because my father had a much more important position than mine. And he was much more famous, and everybody loved my father. And so if I just had a British accent, my whole life would change. I'd be master of my fate. And furthermore, I really resent the fact that my parents left Philadelphia when I was a child and moved to the Midwest because my personality doesn't go with the Midwest. (laughs) The Midwest is tame. I'm not. In, in, In Philadelphia, everybody would understand me and I would have a church with people more important than you. And those important people would pay me a lot better than you do. And I'd have a building that's a building. I'd have an organ. I'd have a tracker organ. I really resent the fact that when I was growing up, my father left my mother at home to grieve the loss of their three children. That he copped out emotionally. And I really resent the fact that my brother Joe died. Because Joe was really my father while my dad was out speaking to children of somebody else's father as an intervarsity staff worker. And so I got robbed of my father and then God took my surrogate father, my oldest brother. I really resent that. I resent the fact that my parents fought constantly after my third brother died. And it was miserable to be in my home. And I was 11 miles from Wheaton and 11 miles from Elgin, halfway in between, backed up to a soybean cornfield with cows mooing. In other words, I couldn't even escape by going down the block. There was no block. And there I was in that unhappy home where the overwhelming reality of that home was that first one, then two, and then the National Merit Scholar at Swarthmore died, the oldest son. And so my father took off. He was gone. And I was left with my mother. And you can imagine if I tell you my mother was not a happy woman. Barely sane, if you want to know the truth. And I resent that. I resent the fact that God has set up the world in such a way that at a certain point in life, your children leave your home and love somebody else more than they love you. I resent the fact that I have gotten fat. And if I could just lose some weight, I would look as good 
as all the other pastors that have churches with people more important than you. Honestly. Who pay them better. Now listen, I know it's difficult for you to enter into my suffering because most of you think you would love to exchange your suffering for my suffering. I know that it looks easy to have my life for you. But I haven't yet begun to tell you the things that I resent. Shall I keep going? I resent that I have to hear about the incest in your home. I'm so sick and tired of it. I resent the fact that I can't get into my bed with my wife without having to think of the incest in your home. Do you want me to keep going? I resent the fact that after I work myself to the bone to care for the souls of this church, I go into an elders meeting and the elders tell me no. What right do they have? They're off earning money while I'm bleeding on the carpet with you. Now, are you still sure that you want to trade your life for mine? Huh? Huh? Listen, every single one of us has an infinite number of reasons why we know that God made a mistake in our life. And we're bitter about it. And we can spend our lives wishing that we did not carry the weight of the Northern Hemisphere. You know, wouldn't it be nice to have been born in the Southern Hemisphere? Then you could be a victim your whole life. Of course, unless you're white South African, then you can be a victim of black South Africa, Rhodesia. (laughs) I mean, do you understand what I'm getting at? You're a victim of the sexual abuse of your father. You're a victim of your mother having left you when you were four years old. You're a victim because you're Hispanic, because you're black, because you're white, because you're Asian, Chinese, Japanese. You're a victim because you're, you have, you have... You're, you're tone deaf, <laughs> you know. You're a victim because you're colorblind. You know, okay, I'm colorblind. This is another thing I resent. Do you know how progressive Apple computer is? What I'd like to know is if they're so doggone per- progressive, why color is at the center of so many of the things they do? You would think they would be sensitive to men like me. Do you know how many limitations I have in what I do with Apple software and hardware because of the way they use colors? <laughs> now, I, I'm actually serious about it. You ever ride in a car with me? I resent the Indiana Department of Transportation. Why? Well, because if you just hang a single light over an intersection and have it blink, I have no idea what it's blinking. Would you please put up a three-tier light that's blinking, and then I know whether it's the top light or the second light that's blinking. Because that's how I know whether or not to proceed through an intersection, whether I should slow down and stop or stop 
or go is stop. (laughs) No, no, no. Slam on the brakes and make the car behind me hit me. (laughs) Okay, stop, proceed with caution, clear the intersection, and go. You know, and their Apple computer is, and they're completely insensitive to me. And then the Bible says what? The Bible says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Some things have become new. And those of you who are believers know that I just lied to you because the real text is, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What this means is that if you were raped by your father as you grew up or your older brother, what this means is that in Christ, that has become new. That. Because if Christ doesn't matter for the most terrible suffering in our life, he matters for nothing. Who wants Jesus because I'm 50 pounds overweight? That's the trivialization of this world that is in bondage to its image. Do you understand that? (laughs) If Jesus does not change my life at my point of greatest suffering, at my point of being reduced to being simply one acted upon instead of one acting, are you with me? someone whose choices don't exist, if Jesus does not make that new, he makes nothing new. If your life won't have significance until you finally get the promotion you've been waiting for, you finally get married, you finally are able to see the death of a husband that has driven you crazy your whole life. Until finally somebody as a counselor sits there and listens to your account of what you suffered as you grew up and validates your pain. If that's what you need to be new, you don't know Jesus Christ. Because what matters is not this world. What matters is not our situations where we have had choice and self-determination taken away from us. And abortion is not going to heal you. What matters is that you are in Christ. And being in Christ is such a radical wound to a man. Such a complete destruction of his life. That Jesus teaches us that it is to be born again. And the born again starts with your abuse. It starts with the death of your brothers. It starts with being white or black or brown. It starts with the things that every day you get up and think if only, and every night you go to sleep and you think if only. It starts there, and then it works out, and it's leaven, and it's salt, 
And it's unbelievable because, thank God Almighty, you're free at last. You see, when you are born again and you put your faith in Jesus, you then have the privilege of being what? Of being... All right, you ready? Of being the help. Does that satisfy you? Of being a servant. Does that satisfy you? All through scripture, doulos, the Greek word doulos is used. And the Greek word doulos means almost always slave. It's somebody that has no choice. No choice. When you come to Christ, what happens is all things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In Christ, there isn't Chinese or Japanese. In Christ, there isn't Mexican or American. In Christ, there isn't uh, African and colored. In Christ, there isn't man and woman, male and female. In Christ, there isn't, what? Slave or free. Can't you just imagine if, you know, they're changing the Bible translations today, and they're changing to get rid of the word slave because it's so horrendous to us. So can't you just imagine them changing that verse, you know? In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, household help, or house owner. <laughs> Somehow I don't think they'll change that one. I think they'll want to have the, the contrast stark there. And what is it? It's slave or free. In Christ, there's neither slave nor free. Why? Because in Christ, we are the slaves of Jesus Christ. Okay? And so what matters? Jesus. What doesn't matter? Our owner. Our owner doesn't matter. Listen to our text. Okay? Okay, here it is. 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 17 to 24 This is the word of God and it is eternally true only as the Lord has assigned to each each one each one, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches, was any man called when he was already circumcised? He's not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone be called in uncircumcision? He's not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is baptism. 
but that's not what it says. What matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Why? Because I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. And the life I live, what? Is now a life of obedience, of being his slave. What matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. And so what? If my parents move from Philadelphia out to Bartlett, Illinois, that was God's choice. That was God's gift. I have faith for that move. If I don't have a British accent, I have faith for that. If I'm fat, I have faith for that. You see, now, wait a second. It's not telling you that sins are right. And I say, yeah, I know, but you get my point. My life isn't going to all of a sudden be different if I'm just not fat anymore. (laughs) You know, it's not going to happen. I might grow in that area, and that would be good, and that would please God. But people, whatever condition God calls you in, Do you have faith for that condition? Do you have faith? You know, I think of all the stories that you have told me about the suffering in your life. And I've heard them. You know I've heard them, huh? Huh? Going to raise your hand? Have I heard your stories? Come on, guys, you're lying. That's right. Now, think of that situation that you have been with me crying over. Do you have faith that God has his eye on you? And that nothing has come to you but has passed through his permissive hand and that he will not use for your good and for his glory. Listen to me. If that is not your faith, and you can't tell me yes, then you are living in bondage to your father who raped you as you grew up. Do you understand me? Do you understand me? Either the choices that have been taken from you define your life, or the mastery of God. (laughs) And you can't have both. You can't go through your life mourning all the choices that have been taken from you and then profess faith in Jesus Christ. You can't do it both because either he is God and nothing has come to you that has not come through his hand. And you can trust him for it. Or he's not God and then, yes, sure, go through your life having the government define For you, what is important? And then you'll go through your life changing your conformity according to the latest fad in conformity of choice. You'll make a choice, good choice. You know, you go through your life being self-determined and therefore a real person. You go through life fulfilling your parents' expectations for you because that's a good choice. You know, you go through life getting rid of being black so that you can be master or black and successful. You know, you go through life 
ministering to other women that have the same pain you have. <laughs> because it validates your pain, you know? And so you go through life showing how sensitive you are to other people's pain. <laughs> you go through life defining yourself by what? By the choices that you have had taken from you. Or you go through life by faith. Now listen to me. This whole world right now is completely caught up in denying that God has, in his sovereign wisdom, determined that some of those of you bearing the image of God are women and some of you bearing the image of God are men. The whole world is caught up in an orgy of denial that it makes any difference whether you're a man or a woman and that God had nothing to do with it and that God has given no commands having anything to do with it. And so everywhere we go, we have women who are butch. And it's a principle. And they're effacing the sovereign will of God that they didn't choose. They choose to manifest as a butch man, but they're a woman, so they bind their breasts, they take hormones, or they simply become a pastor. (laughs) But to heck with God's dispensations, I will not submit. I will be an actor upon, I will not be acted upon. And so every time there's a wedding at this church, it's a principle that we have written in concrete in this church that every woman, when she gets married, will say, obey. (laughs) And every time, you can just, it's just like there's a fox among the chickens. You know, there's like feathers going everywhere and people are mad and people are shifting and and, 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 and the latent noise of the congregation goes through the roof. Coughing, you know, <laughs> you know, and us pastors, as we're doing the liturgy up here, you know, you know, I promise that I will love and honor and obey. <laughs> I kid you not, that's how we feel. We don't like doing that. But, you know, there's something about being a man that makes you responsible to set the standard, especially if God's called you to be a pastor. There's this certain sort of burden that you have to sort of carry as an officer of Christ's church under the authority of your commanding officer that you may not trim the truth, that you may not deny what he has commanded, that you may not give in to the culture... That you have to be faithful. And even though all the parents that come from other evangelical churches spit in your face. Guess what? Free at last. Do you know how many years I went denying the conscience that God has given me on the issue of manhood and womanhood? When I was in high school, my future wife taught me to never refer to a woman as a girl. And so to this day, I have to consciously discipline myself not to call a teenager a woman. Because I learned in high school that she was always to be called a woman. And so no woman was a girl. It was demeaning. 
It was denigrating, all those D words. And do you know that I always said his and her? Always he or she? I was the most disciplined person with my speech you've ever run into. I mean, linguistics professors on sexuality have nothing on me. I was raised in an editor's family. (laughs) My language was, are you ready? Impeccable. (laughs) You know? And I was just more conformed than any of you are. I was dotting my I's and crossing my T's, unless, of course, the dot and I and cross the T made a distinction between men and women, and then I wasn't dotting my I's or crossing my T's. And tolerance? Oh, I was tolerant. And, you know, I knew that the modern person has a certain revulsion against anybody that has a tone or enunciation or volume that matches what they're saying, that we tend to trust people who are as intimate as the television, that the television has changed cultural expression. And so when I preached, and many of you can remember this, (laughs) what I would do, here's what I would do. I would stand behind the pulpit and I would did it did it joke. Remember that? My church asked me to raise my hand when I was joking because it was so sophisticated, so nuanced, so hidden that they couldn't tell, so they said, would you please raise your hand when you're joking? And then I realized that what God commands is don't let the world press you into its mold. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so I began to think about preaching with freedom. Not trying to prove to everybody how sophisticated and tolerant and, and, and nuanced I was. And then I begin to get these letters from professors like Tim O'Connor when he came here from Notre Dame. He'd write me and he'd say, Tim, I don't think you understand how academics perceive you. And then Jürgen von Hagen did the same thing. I, I think a little less declaration and a little more suggestion would be good for you, Tim. And back then, I still had a monotone, but I was beginning to have courage in actually saying some things were true and some things weren't. I remember specifically the Sunday that I thought to myself, I need to say it. And so I said this to my congregation. I said, listen to me carefully. Listen to me carefully. If any of you is living a life of giving in to homosexual temptation, The Bible says to you, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I could not believe my audacity in saying that. 
I was just quoting scripture. And then I found out that week, and this was at another church where there were regularly a number of people committed to homosexuality in this church. (laughs) I remember one time I went to the back to give the benediction. Two guys standing there holding hands, visitors. I'd never seen them before. Tons of music students, if you receive my meaning. And then I heard that that day, a man who, by all appearances, was godly, had gone home and had gone into his bathroom and had started beating the wall. Why? Why? Why did he beat the wall? He wasn't beating the wall because he had homosexual desires. He did have homosexual desires. But you see, he had been able easily to be in evangelical churches for many years, okay? And to have this little thing on the side, you know? And then somebody, somebody, some idiot, some stupid coward thought maybe he should once say in person what Scripture said throughout all the ages. And so that man said it to him, and he went home and he beat the walls because he saw that he had no choice, that it was God or his flesh. And so guess what? He repented. (laughs) Are we all a bunch of lunatics? How can we love people if we rob them of the chance to repent? (laughs) It's just crazy. He repented. And it was hard. It was counseled by John Mangrum for years. And John was faithful to care for him. And then that man, some of you remember, he came to work at our church. Then that man, what? He's now on the pastoral staff of the PCA church, you know? He now has two children in a marriage. And I haven't talked to him about this for probably 10 years, but you know, I'm going to guess that he still struggles with homosexual temptation. (laughs) You know? How about you? Do you still struggle with greed? You know, something about being in a church means that you are one of those that Jesus came to save. And we know he did not come to save the righteous. (laughs) So here we have a bunch of homosexuals. Not sodomites, why? Well, because they're not immersed in their shame, they're repenting. Here we have a bunch of people tempted by same-sex intimacy, a bunch of people tempted by fornication, a bunch of people tempted by adultery, a bunch of people tempted by greed, a bunch of people tempted by bitterness. Okay? Are you with me? And so what? You remember what I said earlier, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. And it's not the product of Brown versus Board of Education. (laughs) Do you get what I'm saying, people? Do you know what Brown versus Board of Education is? It's so so ridiculous. Everybody has this morality play they believe because they're American. And that is that until the Supreme Court rules in your honor, you're not really free. 
And so all the blacks of the country got free the day that we learned that you couldn't discriminate between people groups and have equality, which of course isn't true because you have a discrimination between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and perfect equality between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, does that mean that I don't believe in Brown versus Board of Education? No, I believe in Brown versus Board of Education. And so I'm sorry to disappoint those of you who are originalists, constitutionally, I believe in Brown versus Board of Education. But I don't think that when that ruling was made by the Supreme Court that it gave freedom to blacks. (laughs) Because I have a sneaking feeling that Mahalia Jackson was singing, his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me long before Brown versus Board of Education. Now listen, think of the thing that you are convinced, if it changed, that your life would become content. (laughs) You know, everybody has, you remember how Billy Graham would say, every head bowed and every eye closed, all right? All right. Every brain, think of that thing that if it changed, you would be happy. Okay? Hannah would divorce Lucas... And when she would come home, I'm talking home, home. Hannah's my youngest daughter, and I want her home. He said that we can take Bree for a while, which is his youngest daughter at this point. So you take the thing in your life that if it could be removed, that you would be happy. Okay? And my question is, is this then an obstacle to the victorious Christian life? (laughs) If finally this issue were dealt with, would you... Are you ready for this? Any old Doors fans? Would you break on through to the other side? That one thing, that one thing, if it's dealt with, you'd break on through to the other side. What is it? You know, think about it. What is it that causes you to lie awake at night bitter and faithless? What is it? You take that thing and you ask yourself, whether you're a slave of God, whether you have the dignity to be a slave of God, whether you have the faith to be a slave of God. If any man is in Christ, what? He's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He's not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called an uncircumcision? He's not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. An uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. 
Now, brothers and sisters, listen carefully to what I'm going to read next. Listen carefully. Were you called while a slave? Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. Now, please have the honesty and integrity to admit that this is entirely contrary to the morality story of the United States of America. The land of the free. What the Bible says is, were you called while a slave, don't worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. In other words, what? In other words, slavery to the Christian is an indifferent matter. Do you understand this? Whatever your slavery is in your life, whatever the thing is that you lie awake at night thinking, if that will change, then my life will be happy. Here you are, a slave. And don't don't cover this over with a bunch of political crud about slavery in the ancient world being ever so much more dignified than slavery in pre-Civil War times. The whole definition of a slave is that he has no choice. His wife can be taken from him and sold. His children can be taken. The master can have his wife. Do you understand? He doesn't have to be paid. He doesn't decide what work he's going to do. He doesn't decide where he's going to live. He doesn't decide what he's going to eat or when he's going to eat. The very definition of a slave is that he is acted upon instead of acting. He has choices made for him instead of making choices himself. This is the meaning of this text. This is God's word. And what God says is, were you called while a slave, don't worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's what? Freed man. We don't need more legislation. We don't need more Supreme Court decisions for anybody to be free. What we need is for them to have faith in Jesus Christ and to be finally rid of the slavery, the only slavery that ultimately matters, which is slavery to Satan. Because when you are born again, you're transferred from one of two conditions that every person who's ever lived is in. Either they're a slave of Satan or they're a slave of God. And then there's an infinite number of life situations in between. Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere, Asian, European, black, white, PhD, flunky. Woman, man. And so he says this. Were you called while slave? Don't worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while slave is the Lord's what? Freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's what? Slave. How are we defined? We're defined by our relationship to Jesus Christ. 
We're not defined by the political rhetoric of, of whatever you know, station you listen to, whatever television program you listen to, whatever you read. We are not defined by the words of this world. We're defined by the word of God. And once you have put your faith in Jesus, you have been transferred from slave of Satan to slave of God. And now, guess what? You ready? It don't matter. And you say to me, oh yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're a man, you're white, you're Northern Hemisphere. Oh, come on, don't be so stupid. Do you know that I've lived my life wishing that I was a wife? That was my wife laughing. (laughs) The grass is always greener on the other side. Why do whites emulate black culture, people? (laughs) Have you ever thought about that? We're always looking to the other side. It's not just the people under looking, wishing they could be up. It's the people up wishing they could be under. And you say, oh, no, that's never the case. And I say, do you know how many men in this church refuse to carry responsibility for their wives? And you say, well, that's because a lot of wives refuse to submit to their husbands. I say, oh, yeah, 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 that's the old CBMW line, you know. All women would be perfectly submissive if husbands were perfect. And so, you know, the only reason you have wives who aren't submissive is because you have husbands who are dictatorial, authoritarian, arrogant, you know, drinking beer, watching football, naughty them. I turned it off after they got up by 35. I wasn't going to have any more of that one. (laughs) There are some things up with which I cannot put. And that's Tom Brady and his coach, whose name will not be mentioned in this worship service. I caught that one from my son, Taylor. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to like him until Taylor taught me. And so, listen. Everybody has a reason to wish that they were the opposite. Blacks to whites, whites to blacks, men to women, women to men. Why do you think men don't take responsibility in your home? That's the essence of manhood. Why don't they do it? Because they want to be women. Why are women butch? Why are women running around cracking the whip on men? Because they want to be men. There's no end to our discontent. what, What is it? The summer of our discontent? In America, it's the summer, winter, spring, and fall of our discontent. We're a nation of victims who go around saying, my mama don't love me. And we have no faith in the sovereignty of God. He is the one who is in charge. We don't need to tweak the Constitution. We don't need to get the right president. We don't need to quick shore up the laws of the First Amendment so that we're sure that we won't suffer persecution as Christians. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is what? Christ's what? Help? 
Servant? Houseboy? You know, I remember when I was in seminary, I worked for this extremely wealthy family. Trust me. They even had a, a peninsula out on the ocean of just wealthy people. The guy next to him owned Yachting Magazine. The guy on the other side had invented the floppy drive. Okay? And, you know, some of that elitism, I have to admit, rubbed off on me. <laughs> you know? Because I now knew where the goods resale shops were. And so I went there and took great delight in buying Brooks Brothers suits for $25. And then he died. And I got the pick of the litter and there were about 60 suits. And back then I was an adipose. And so I could wear them all. I gave them to friends. Oh, my friends had just great privilege from being my friend. And I had great privilege because I was the houseboy. And then one day I was in the basement. I was 30. I had a child and I had a wife. And down in the basement, I heard the stentorian voice of the lady of the house say, Is the boy here yet? And somehow I felt less. And I had to make a decision then whether or not I was going to continue to work for the lady of the house as a boy. And then when Joseph was born, because of finals, my my final year in seminary and because of working a bunch of jobs and because of Mary Lee giving birth to Joseph, all of it came together. And I was about a week late, only a week in getting the spring... um, Uh, leaves out from under her rhododendron and azaleas. Now, mind you, this is after three years of working for them where they had liked my work the whole time. And as she's going out of her driveway one day, she looks at me and she says, Timothy, she says, Timothy, the leaves are late getting removed. And I said, Mrs. So-and-so, I'm sorry. My wife's just had a baby. I'm in finals at seminary. It's my last year, and I will work on it and get it done as quickly as I can. I'm sorry. And she said, I simply don't care about what is going on in your life. I want the leaves removed. Now, think about it. Probably for every one of us, that's as close as we've ever gotten to seeing slavery. You know? She told me she didn't care what was going on in my life. (laughs) She called me boy. (laughs) All right, I'm going to end with a little story. On that estate was a godly man. And his name was Enoch. Enoch was either the second or third generation slave on that estate. Yes, it was Manchester by the sea. And he was their slave. Because he had been born to it. 
He had been born on that same estate with a different family, and he had seen his father every time a carriage went in and out of that house, running behind it with a rake and a broom to make the gravel appear as if it hadn't been disturbed. Do you understand this? They had lived above the, in the carriage house, above the garage, above the, the cars and the horses, actually, originally. And so when Enoch came along, Enoch was owned. And it was his calling in life to satisfy the needs of the people on the same estate. And so Enoch would spend all day, every single day, at that house, sitting in their family room back by the deck, keeping watch. They had a place in New York, a place in Boston. They had a nice estate on Hobe Sound. They had an island up in Maine. Are you with me? They weren't there very much. Enoch was there. Now, you might ask, what did they pay him? What did they pay him? Well, Enoch had a very old international harvester that he drove. An SUV before there were SUVs. All right? And they actually had given that to him to use, and they covered the insurance and the gas. Okay? And that was Enoch's pay. And Enoch probably put in, I'm going to guess, 70 to 90 hours a week, maybe 100 on that property. That's all he did. He did the dahlias. He did the roses. He was too gnarled with arthritis. He was in his 80s to be able to do more manipulative things because his hands were gone. He was a Baptist. He had played piano for his Baptist churches his whole life. One day, Enoch asked me to zip his pants up because he couldn't get them because of his arthritis. And you know what Enoch did as he sat there? Enoch had a Bible, and he would read through the Bible, and he had a different color pen for every year. And every year, he would mark next to every chapter as he read it. If you look at my Bible, you'll see that I make a mark next to every chapter as I read it. He devoured the word of God. If I ever complained about my job, I would say, you know, Enoch, I'm disappointed. He said, how are you spelling that, boy? I'd say, well, what do you mean, how am I spelling? He said, are you spelling it D-I-S or H-I-S? Disappointed or his appointed? If I ever complained, Enoch would say, don't say a word, boy. Don't say a word. You know, I never took umbrage when he called me boy. Well, I was listening to the man of the house one time. There's a hospital name for him in Boston. You'll see it on the side of the hospital, his name. And that man was explaining to me one time because he thought that I was more sophisticated than Enoch, even though I was a Christian, and that was too bad. He explained to me that they were inclined to give Enoch some money, but that what they were concerned about is that if they gave Enoch money, that Enoch would give his money to Jerry Falwell. And so they just weren't going to give him money rather than have their money go through Enoch to Jerry Falwell, right? So about the third year I worked there, um, they were gone somewhere. I don't remember where it was. And I was talking to Enoch out by the front door. And I can picture it 
as if it were happening right now. Enoch, this sort of shriveled, shorter, bald, white-haired, godly, 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 godly man. And Enoch was a man of few words. And he said to me, he said, hey, boy, he said, come on over here. I want to show you something. And he took his wallet slowly out of his pocket. And he said, boy, I want to show you something. And he reached into his wallet and he took a check out. He said, boy, you know what? He said, I think you remember that Jerry Falwell is in real, real trouble. He said, you know, he sent me a telegram. And the telegram said he's in a bad situation because a storm blew over his radio tower. And he said, I just need to do something to help Jerry. Now, I want you all to know that I couldn't stand Jerry Falwell at the time. Okay? I just couldn't then. I came to like him more as I got older. But I couldn't stand Jerry Falwell. so much more sophisticated than that. And I despised the fact that a Christian leader was manipulating an old man by sending him a telegram because he thought that telegram was actually from Jerry. And it wasn't. It was mass-produced telegrams, and that's lying. Okay? And so Enoch is explaining to me that Jerry needed money. His radio tower had gone down. He sent a telegram to him asking for money. And Enoch said, so I started praying. And I'm thinking, oh, this is getting worse as the minute goes by. And so he describes how he's praying. And he says, so I said to the Lord... I said, I don't remember what he called him, Lord or something. He said, Jerry needs help. He's reporting his prayer to me. Jerry needs help. And so I want to send him $10,000. He says, now, boy, you know, he says, every year like clockwork, the man of the house, actually, it was the lady of the house. She was the man of the house. And he said, like clockwork, they've given me $5,000. I remember how I told you they never gave him any money. Well, they actually did. They gave him 5000 every single year. That was his total pay f- for a whole year of working 90 hours a week. All right? And the car and the insurance and the gas. Don't forget those. <laughs> you know? And so he, he starts tearing up. And he says, boy, he says, come on over here. I want you to look at this. And I went over. And it said, pay to the order of Enoch Falk, $10,000. And then he said, boy, he said, look at this. Now, what was this? This was a place that had master paintings that when... The art museum in Boston came to borrow one for an exhibit and found that they would not be covered driving it back to Boston. They left until the insurance policy was in place, and then they came back for the picture. It had China on one wall of the dining room that was a gift from, and I can never remember whether from Washington to Hamilton or Hamilton to Washington, I don't remember. But a whole set of huge old China that had been in the family, passed down from generation. Five alarm systems, panic buttons, infrared, smoke, fire, magnetic strips. One time I, I was in the house and uh, somehow I set off the alarm. And so the cops came immediately 
And I was reduced to being at the front door, slide, you know, huge plate glass windows, trying to tell them where they needed to go to get the key that was hidden so that they could open the door and find out I was legitimate. <laughs> you know, I'm doing like pantomime behind the window of the, I mean, this place was a museum. When he died, that man, while I was there, I parked the car of Michael Dukakis. The president of Georgetown, she was on the board, was there. Everybody was there. And Enoch, with this little check of a piddling nothing from them, but a piddling nothing that had doubled because the hand of God had doubled it. He looks at this house and he takes his hands and he says, boy, look at this. Now, Enoch never said anything negative about his master. He said, boy, look at this. And he took in everything in that house. And he said, do you know, every single time he comes home, do you know what he says? As he opens the door, he says, Enoch, is anything wrong? Did anything go wrong, Enoch? Enoch, is anything wrong? And then he held this check up in front of me. He said, hey, boy, he said, lay not up for yourselves treasures where moth and rust doth corrode, but lay up your treasures in heaven. Is that spelled D-I-S or H-I-S? Do you know, you can tell I loved Enoch, right? I loved him. Do you know, after working with him a while, I asked him about his family, and I found out that he had two sons. And not once in the three years I worked with him, was there ever any contact between him and his sons? His sons wanted nothing to do with him. And Enoch sat there and walked with God. And then he was no more. Listen, there are Enochs today in this church. There are men and women who have suffered much more than you ever will. And they are filled with the joy of the Lord. And that joy is their strength. Listen, give yourself to Jesus. Let his blood wash you. And when you have been washed by the blood of Jesus, you've repented of your sins, you've hit the walls of your bathroom and then broken and gone under the blood of Jesus. It's humiliating. Then you may one day rise to the level of an Enoch falling. And Enoch was free at last free at last. Thank God Almighty he was free at last. And that 10,000, you know where it went. Precisely where the man of the house didn't want it to go. It went off to Jerry Falwell. (laughs) And you know what they say? He who laughs last, laughs best. And if you want to know what the book of Revelation is all about, 
That's a summary. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful, wonderful privilege we have to be your slaves and to know that nothing comes to us but that it has passed through your hand and that you will use it for our blessing and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.